0: As you are opening to the book of Galatians, I would just invite you, I'm going to do something which may seem uh, not worth the time I'm going to spend on it, but I I really think it will be helpful and powerful. Um, So as you turn there, I I want to read to you, uh, and you don't have to turn to all of these books, I'm I'm going to go through it pretty fast, pretty rapidly, but I want to read to you the way Paul begins his uh, letters that he has written to other corporate churches, so, Paul, obviously, this is, we talked last week, this is written to uh, the Galatians, and Paul has written many epistles to the churches at large, and this is how he greets the, the churches. All, I'm reading from Romans, Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, and Thessalonians. This is how he typically greets them. To the Romans, he says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at least succeed in coming to you, for I long to see you. He says to the Corinthians, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace that was given you in Christ Jesus. He says to the Philippians, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you are all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. He tells the Colossians, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. He tells the Thessalonians in both of his epistles, We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering you before God, remembering your faith and hope and labor of love and steadfastness. He says again to them that we ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers, and this is right because your faith is growing abundantly. So you get the picture. He writes to these churches, he has a standard introduction, and then he greets them with something along the lines of, "I love you, I can't wait to see you. I'm always praying for you. I thank God for you." It's standard for him. And these churches had issues. And you read through First and Second Corinthians, especially, they were being rebuked all throughout those letters. They had issues. They had problems, yet he still, he begins these letters by reminding them, before we get to everything else, I want you to know, I love you. I can't wait to see you. I want to be with you. I'm praying for you. So how does Paul begin his introduction to the Galatians? Probably something similar, right? To the churches of Galatia, I just want you to know your faith is being heard across the region, how we long to be with you. We love you, and I'm praying for you always. Look at verse 6. We looked at the introduction last week. Here's how he begins his letter, verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. We talked last week that this was going to be a unique letter for Paul. It's a unique tone it's a unique setting. This is truly unique. No other letter. You can even read First and Second Timothy and Titus and Philemon, the letters that Paul wrote to individuals. And he still, he begins those letters the same way. I love you. I'm thinking about you. I'm praying for you. This is the one Pauline exception where he, he cuts right to the chase and he begins with rebuke. Nothing about loving them and praying about them and thinking of them. You can tell he probably got word of what was happening and just immediately went, uh, you know, okay, where's my papyri? Where's my pen? And he just gets right to the chase. Yeah, gives them their little greeting. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ Jesus and are turning to a different gospel. So uh, as we... uh, open up, we are going to, as we talked last week, begin our process through the book of Galatians, learning more about the gospel and seeing that Paul is addressing a people, he's addressing churches at large who are falling away from that gospel. The, the ESV uses the word desert, deserting in verse 6, and translations can vary pretty widely on this word because the, the, the word that Paul is saying is he doesn't view the, the, the churches at large as necessarily already being apostate. He views them as being in the process of it. They are, they are in the process of turning away from the true gospel. And, and these are the people, and then we get this sense in verse 6, that Paul, remember, he preached the gospel of these people. He helped plant the churches in this region. And so from Paul's perspective, it hasn't been that long since he left, and he's already getting word that they've abandoned the true gospel. And we're going to see later on in the letter, it's because false teachers have come in. And so we begin by setting the tone of the letter, right? He doesn't begin with glad tidings. He doesn't begin with prayer and recognition. He begins with rebuke. These churches are on a bad road, and Paul wrote the book of Galatians to put a stumbling block on that road, to halt them from the direction that they are going down. So let's read our sermon text this morning, and then we will learn a lot about the gospel and I will sort of give you the the game plan for the sermon this morning we are going to read verses 6 through 10 as we continue on in our early sermon series in the book of Galatians beginning in Galatians chapter 1 verse 6 if you would please follow along for these are the very words of God I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel not that there is another one If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Well, the overall gist here is, as we said, Paul is writing to this church... To these churches, he is calling them to repent of this direction they are going down, and he is reminding them to, to curse, to get rid of these false teachers. No matter who they are, whoever it is that is preaching to you something other than what you first received from us, let them be a curse, do await them. So he's calling them to come back to the true gospel and to abandon the false teachers that have been instrumental in pulling them away from it. In this process, though, because I, I, I want us to see that subtly, though, we learn a lot about the gospel in this process. And so the, the overall kind of structure of the sermon today is I'm going to give us five things that I think we learn about the gospel, which you may already know, but are important reminders for us, especially as we press on through into chapter 3, the end of chapter 2, when we really start getting to the heart of the controversy of the Galatians, these are important general reminders about the, uh, the gospel. Five things, I'm going to read them off quickly now, but we will go back through them very slowly. We're going to see that the gospel is exclusive, the gospel is offensive, the gospel is biblical, the gospel is immutable, and the gospel is central. So let's look at the first one, the gospel is exclusive, Paul tells them, as we've read multiple times already in verse 6, that I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. But then he says in verse 7, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So Paul makes very clear in verses 6 and 7 that there is only one gospel, there's only one true gospel. He he presents the gospel as being very exclusive. The gospel is not a big umbrella term with lots of different definitions that are allowed to fit underneath it. The gospel is very narrowly defined. It has a very strict, rigid definition. And anything else that doesn't meet that definition is another one. And he goes on to say in verse 7, it's really not a true one. You see, the gospel is very exclusive It doesn't make room for other gospels, for other belief systems, for other faith goals and hopes. It's a very exclusive thing. And so Paul tells us something kind of interesting in verses 6 and 7. On the one hand, he says what the Galatians are believing is another gospel. But then on the other hand, he tells us, but that doesn't really exist. So what Paul is doing is Paul is recognizing that categorically, categorically speaking, there are lots of gospels in the world. Every system of faith, every religion, every worldview has a gospel. Every person every day has a gospel that they want to preach to you. They might not know it, they might not call it that, but they all have it. Every system in the world, every religious viewpoint has a gospel. As a matter of fact, right now I'm reading a book uh, just in my spare time on Darwinian evolution. And even, even a Darwinist, even, even someone who, who maintains, I have no religion, I have no God, when you study evolution, evolution actually provides for you an ultimate goal in life, which is to pass on your genes. Even Darwin had a gospel. Right? You think about it, Whatever every religion in the world, if, if, if a spokesperson for that religion Was given 30 seconds to address the whole world. Like, let's say that somehow they were going to be put on a television screen that was going to be broadcasted in every place in the world and they had 30 seconds. What would you say to the world? If you had 30 seconds to talk to everybody in the world at one time, only 30 seconds, that's it. What would you say? What do you think Paul would say? What would Darwin say? What would Buddha say? What would Mohammed say? That's their gospel. You see, every religion has a gospel. Some use that term, some don't, but it's built into the fabric of a worldview. You think about a gospel, a gospel for a system is sort of the, the keystone doctrine, the highest pursuit for people, right? So in, in certain religions, there's this concept of reincarnation, right? That, that's your goal is to reincarnate as something better, and your whole life's trajectory is aimed in that direction. So that's their gospel. However you get to reincarnation, that's their gospel. You see, everybody has a gospel. Everybody has a keystone doctrine, something that they want the world to know and believe, a direction, a goal, an aim for mankind. So in in one sense, there are many gospels. There are gospels all over the world. There's a Christian gospel, there's a Buddhist gospel, there's a Mormon gospel, there's an atheist gospel. Everybody has a gospel message. And so in that sense, there are gospels abounding, But Paul clarifies then in in verse 7 though, so there are lots of categorical Gospels, but in the true sense, if if what we mean by Gospel, the word Gospel means good news, if something is a lie, and if something damns you to hell, then it by definition is not very good news. So categorically there exists lots of Gospels, but truthfully, objectively, there's, there's, there's only one. There's only one of all these Gospels, only one of them is objectively true. Of all these Gospels, only one of them can objectively save you. Only one of them is truthfully good. So that's why Paul says, on one hand, there's categorical Gospels, and the Galatians have drifted into a new Gospel. That's, That's the point Paul's trying to make. This is not just a different form of Christianity. The Galatians were not just starting a new denomination. Right, Paul thinks this about baptism, but we think this. And Paul thinks this about circumcision, but we think this. There's room for denominational differences, but there's no room for gospel differences. The gospel is the keystone of every religion, the keystone of every faith. There's no different gospel. If, if you have a different gospel, you are no longer part of a different denomination. You're part of a different religion. So Paul is telling the Galatians that by turning to a different gospel, what you have actually done is you've not turned to just a different form of Christianity you have left Christianity. You're in an altogether religion. I don't, want, I don't know what you want to call it, but you're not followers of Jesus. You're not Christians because you don't have the gospel. So they've gone to a categorical gospel, but it's not a true gospel because it's not good news. There is only one gospel, and it's very exclusive. It has a narrow definition, and it doesn't make room for perversions and differences. And so that leads us to our next point, which is uh, probably the tension in this room right now, maybe even. And this is why the gospel is offensive. The gospel is offensive. Because what we are doing when we talk about the ex- exclusivity of the gospel is we are now telling everybody else and all of their religions that differ with us on this that they're wrong. And that they're in trouble. I mean, that's an offensive thing. For example, look at how Paul describes the gospel they're turning to in verse 6. You are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Verse 7, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So these people, these are not just friendly. Yeah, they have a slightly different religion. They're troublers. And they're distorting that which is good. That's offensive language. And this is also an, an important reminder as well. We also need to just briefly be reminded that there are lots of, as we talked about, there's lots of different Gospels. The most dangerous ones are the ones that bear a passing resemblance to the Christian Gospel. Those are the most dangerous ones. Right? We see the same principle when Jesus tells the Pharisees that, they are sheeps in, or that they're wolf in sheep's clothing. Right? That's because Jesus recognizes that a, a, a wolf with sheep's clothing is far more dangerous than a wolf in wolf's clothing. Right? A sheep, if you see a wolf, you know to stay away from it. If someone walked into this room and said, hey, listen, guys, I'm religious and I love you and and I want us all to be part of the same church, but I just want to tell you I believe something slightly different. I don't think God exists and I I think the world came here by accident and Jesus was a fraud, um, but we're all the same. That would not be hard for you to be like, yeah, we're not the same. That wouldn't really be a threat to you. But if someone were to come in here and say, listen, I believe in Jesus, I believe he's God, I believe he's Lord, I believe in the gospel, I believe he died on the cross, I believe he rose from the dead, I believe in the Spirit, then we sound like we're friends, right? But uh, keep your marker here, turn briefly uh, back in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, just one book behind. Look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 2. Paul is worried that the Corinthians are about to become as gullible as the Galatians have. Paul's Paul's going to express, I'm worried about you. I'm worried that I'm going to lose you. That's what he's expressing in chapter 11, because they also have had false teachers come in claiming to be apostles and is leading them astray. So look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. I'm sorry, I, I might have said 1 Corinthians. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. So even in the first century, we have people saying, hey, I believe in Jesus. I've been filled by the Spirit. I preach the gospel. And Paul's saying, yeah, but that's the wrong Jesus. That's the wrong Spirit. That's the wrong gospel. So what this tells us is that terminology is not sufficient. Just saying the right terminology is not sufficient. Because what we mean by those words matters. And that's why false religions that look like Christianity are so devastating because we can be lured into thinking we're all basically the same. They believe in Jesus. They believe in the gospel. They believe in the Holy Spirit. But Paul says, don't you realize that's a different Jesus than mine? That's a different gospel than mine. That's a different spirit than mine. Probably there are lots of examples in the world to use, but let me just give you one quick one that always comes to mind when I read this. It's Mormons. Do you know what a standard Mormon says when they go to the door, knock on your door? He said, do you want to hear the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? And if you ask them how they know it to be true, they will tell you it's because the Spirit has given me a burning in my bosom which has testified to the truth of this testimony. So if you ask a Mormon, what do they believe in? They believe in Jesus. They believe in the gospel. They believe in the Spirit. That's why they're at your door, to tell you what the Spirit has done and that Jesus... But it's when you start asking them to define these terms that you realize we are nowhere on the same planet. Quite literally, actually. Their God lives on another planet in the solar system. We're nowhere close. But they believe in Jesus. They believe he died on a cross. You see, the gospel is so exclusive and it's so definitional that it narrows very thin, what Jesus calls the narrow road, And then that, by definition, is now what makes point number two, kind of getting back on track here, that the gospel is so offensive. Because as I said, we're telling people, oftentimes, I know you say you believe in Jesus, but that's the wrong one. And this is what makes preaching the gospel such a a scary thing. You, You see, even if you go back to the first century, it was not what the Christians believed that made Rome start persecuting them. It was what they didn't believe that made Rome start persecuting them. Rome had no problem with Christian doctrine. Rome had no problem. Caesar never had a problem with thinking that Jesus was God and that Jesus was Lord. There was no problem there. You can worship Jesus all you want. Yeah, great. Christians are welcome in Rome. But the problem was that the Christian claims were not just, this is our God, this is our belief system, but the Christian claims were, this should be everybody's. You see, the Romans, they wanted Christians just to add their new God to the pantheon of gods everyone was already believing. Rome was already a polytheistic religion. You had your God, and you had your God, and you had your God, now the Christians have theirs, so all of our gods can all be worshipped together. But the Christians said, no, your gods are false gods. You must repent. That's what made it so offensive. And the same goes for our day and age today. We live in a culture that is saturated in what we call postmodernism, right? Different ages of human history have been given different, different titles. Right? There was the Renaissance period, and then there was modernity, and we are now living in postmodernity. And and, and the worldview of postmodernity is highly subjective. And what that means is the greatest offense in our cultural milieu is to believe that you, when you're right, it means someone else is wrong. Christianity is sort of a religious zero-sum game. Either we're right and you're wrong, or you're right and we're wrong. But postmodernism says, no, why can't we all just be right? So you you can tell you're dealing with a postmodernist if they use words like my truth and your truth. Well, this is my truth. Well, that's your truth. What's your truth? Why don't you tell me your truth and I'll tell you my truth. Folks, there's no such thing as my truth and your truth. There's just truth. But what people want is they want this subjective, no, we can all be right at the same time. It's this very contradictory system which says the only objective truth is that there are no objective truths. It's objectively true that nothing is objectively true. And so the highest blasphemy in the secular religion is to tell somebody else they're wrong. This is why I guarantee you, if we were to walk around town And we were to play a game where I was going to just pick a person at random and you had to go tell them something. And we went around and I picked 50 random people. This is supposed we're not in quarantine at this time. There's a lot of people out. And I said, I want you to go up to that person and say, Excuse me, I hate to interrupt you, but I just want you to know that God loves you so much and He thinks you're so great and you are. You're wonderful. That wouldn't be that hard of a message to tell people. You might still be a little uncomfortable. You know, I'm a little bit of an introvert. I don't really like to talk to strangers. But that wouldn't be that intimidating to say, who's going to be angry with you? Even someone who doesn't believe in God is still going to be like, thanks. Right? That's an easy message. But now let's say, rather, go to those same 50 people, and now I want you to tell them that they are dead in their trespasses and sins. They have enmity with a holy God. God wants to crush them. His wrath abides upon them. And if they do not repent and turn from their wicked ways, they will burn for all eternity in torment. Go tell them that. The gospel's offensive. That's why we don't like, it's why it's scary to preach the gospel because we inherently recognize people don't want to hear this. It's exclusive. It's not making room for their lifestyle. It's not making room for their current beliefs. It's calling them to repent of their lifestyle, to repent of their current beliefs. The gospel is exclusive and therefore it is offensive. And Paul actually leverages this point in verse 10. Verse 10 can really seem kind of awkward in the narrative. Right? It almost seems like it doesn't belong. What does he say in verse 10, and why does he say it? He says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. You see, what we have to do with so many of Paul's letters is we sort of have to do what we call reverse engineering. Reverse engineering, you may have heard the term, it's when you take a finished project, product and, and then you break it open and work backward to try to figure out how it got there. Right, like if you don't know how to build a car, you can take a car apart and learn a lot about how it was built. If you don't, you know that's reverse engineering. And so we have to do that with a lot of Paul's letters because we don't know what Paul heard about the Galatians. We don't have either the letter that he received or the oral testimony. We don't know what Paul heard about what's going on, but we can make some really confident assumptions based on how he writes. And so what is most likely happening here is the people who have come into the churches of Galatia who are trying to turn people from Paul's message have accused Paul of being a man pleaser. Right? The people in Galatia, well, I've got to pick between Paul or I've got to pick between these guys and how do I know which one to pick? When these guys were saying, we should pick with us. You see, Paul, he just tells people what they want to hear. He's flip-floppy. He'll change his message from one group to another. He's, he's just a man-pleaser. And, and, and it may have been somewhat easy to make this up about Paul. I mean, it was Paul himself who said that uh, to the Jews, I became like a Jew. I became under the law. To those to the Greeks, I became like a Greek. I was not under the law. I become all things to all people in order that I might win some. So Paul certainly changed his lifestyle. He changed how he addressed his messages. He changed a lot to try to accommodate people and help the gospel Uh, be a little bit less rough on the edges. But they are accusing him of ultimately just telling people what they want to hear. And so Paul says verses 6 through 9, and then he takes them to verse 10. He says, read 6 through 9 and tell me I'm trying to please men. Is is someone who's just interested in pleasing man, does someone come in and say stuff like, "I I am dumbfounded with you right now. You are turning from the truth so quickly and that those who are troubling you, who are distorting this good thing, let them be accursed. Does that sound like someone who's trying to please men? He begins this letter rebuking them. This is an epistolary spanking. He spanks them and then he tells these false teachers they're going to hell. That's why the DSV uses the term accursed. Your Bibles might use the more literal word, the word Anathema. The word anathema just means the judgment a curse of God. It was used in the Old Testament when God would bring, would rain down judgment on a city. This, these are not the words of someone who's trying to please men. Paul is not trying to make friends right now. Paul comes in and says, I cannot believe you. And by the way, those false teachers go to hell. Right? As, that's not pastors cussing. That's it's really a fairly accurate, modernized, contemporary version of anathema. Go to hell. So Paul utilizes the exclusivity of the gospel, the offensiveness of the gospel, and says, listen, anyone who wants to please Christ, you cannot be a man pleaser. He says, if I was trying to please man, end of verse 10, I would not be a servant of Christ. You have to accept it right now. If I'm going to be a Christian, I'm going to offend people. Now, it doesn't mean that we're needlessly provocative Paul was not being needlessly provocative. He was not just simply, he, he wasn't you know, just throwing cheap shots and low blows and trying to, but Paul just recognized, I'm just going to tell them the truth, and the truth is offensive. The truth is hard to hear. So Christians do not need to go around being jerks, We can still try to be kind and loving and gracious in how we present things, but at the end of the day, our message is in and of itself offensive. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, it's the message of the cross, which is a stumbling block to the Jews and and foolishness to the Greeks. The gospel is a foolish, offensive message. And no matter how much flowery language you use, no matter how much you sweet talk it, if you teach it right, it's offensive. We're telling people they're wrong, and we're telling people that they are accursed. So Paul recognizes that the gospel is very exclusive, and the gospel is also offensive. But we see also, number three, that the gospel, I'm going to say the gospel is biblical. And what I mean by that is, how do we know the gospel? How do you determine what it is? Right, we just got done talking about false teachers, people coming in with a different Jesus, a different gospel, a different spirit. How do we go about sorting all this out? Well, let's look at what Paul called them to. He says in verse 8, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. We're going to come back to this because that's quite an amazing statement. But notice Paul says this, But even if we... So Paul's saying, who's the we, right? So that includes Paul and it includes the brothers that he wrote with in verse 2. Right? Paul is writing this with the brothers, and he's saying, Eve, even if we. So, listen to how amazing this is. Paul said that I could come back to you and change the message. And what should you say to Paul? Anathema. Paul himself would hypothetically fall under this cursing if he were to change the message. So, what's Paul's standard for these people then? It's not angels. They're not asking for divine revelation from, an, or not divine, but from an angelic revelation. Because he says if an angel tells you what gospel to believe and it's contrary to something, then anathema. It's not the Christian community, right? We can all come to you. We would be anathema. It's not even the perpetuity of Paul's apostolic ministry. Paul said, Paul knows he would never could, but hypothetically, even if he went apostate, then we would not follow him. So what's the standard, Paul says then? Well, look at what he tells them. If, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you. So for Paul, the standard was the first original apostolic message. That's the standard. The original apostolic message. If anything departs or deviates from that, we don't want it. And so the question that I want to ask is, we don't have time to unpack this academically, but I just... W- w- make this claim here how do we get that then the scriptures these are our earliest most reliable testimonies to the most primitive beliefs of the followers of christ this is our earliest testimony this so this is why let me just briefly mention to you i I, one of the things that is really difficult in the christian life is we struggle with knowing how much to let church history influence our interpretation of scripture And I do think it is a grave mistake to ignore church history. I think it's incredibly arrogant to assume no one has ever wrestled with the issues I'm wrestling with. No one smarter than me has ever wrestled with these issues. No community has ever wrestled with biblical interpretation. I'm perfectly fine to just read it, get it, and I don't care what anyone who's come before me has ever said or believed. I think that's an incredibly arrogant, dangerous position. But on the other hand, we're on this teeter-totter here because I don't want to swing so far the other direction which some religious communities do where the testimony of the early church becomes this infallible guide that I have to obey. Because Paul does not tell me that the early church fathers are my standard for knowing what the gospel is. Paul does not tell me the medieval church is my standard for knowing what the gospel is. Paul does not tell me the reformers are my standard for knowing what the gospel is. The gospel that I want is the one Paul and the other apostles first preached. I don't care what Augustine believed about the gospel ultimately. I don't care what Rome and the Pope believe about the Gospel, ultimately, I don't care what Calvin or Luther or John MacArthur or R.C. Sproul, I don't care unless they are in line with the original apostolic message, and I would argue that the Scriptures are a more reliable testimony to that original apostolic message than Augustine or Calvin or Luther will ever be. Our Scriptures are our highest authority, taking us right back to the earliest apostolic message. That's what we want. And so that's why I say, ultimately, where is the gospel revealed? How do you know the gospel? Read your Bible. Read through the book of John. Read through Galatians. Read through Romans. That's where the gospel is to be found. Now, I'm not saying Augustine rejected it. I'm not saying the Reformers rejected it. And they can be very, very helpful tools for us. But I'm saying, ultimately, we don't want the gospel of the Reformation. We want the gospel of the Apostles. The gospel is... Biblical. The gospel is exclusive. The gospel is offensive. The gospel is biblical. All of this also presupposes one quick point. The gospel is immutable. What does that mean? If something is immutable, it means it cannot change. The gospel is clearly unchanging, right? Otherwise, Paul could not tell us what he told us in verse 8. Because in verse 8 presupposes if, if the gospel could change, if God could change his gospel then an angel should have the authority to step in and say, okay, listen, I know that Paul said this, but I mean, it's the 21st century, guys. Things have changed. Cultures have changed. People have changed. We need to adapt our message to make it just a little bit more comfortable. And just, it'll fit better, right? People will accept it more. You know, the church is dwindling. You need more people in here, so let's let's adapt this message a little bit. God has changed it. God's changed the message to help you. No, Paul presupposes the message isn't going to change. I might change. The angels might change. The Christian community might change. But the gospel's not changing. What we originally proclaimed, what Christ did, what Christ accomplished, that's a historical fact set in stone. No one can change what Christ did and what he said. You can try to mess with the Bible. You can cut the Bible out. You can try to you know, distort the manuscripts. You can do whatever you want. But the gospel is an unchanging message. It doesn't evolve with cultures and societies. It doesn't adapt to a new way of life. We have one first century proclamation, and it's going to stay that same proclamation until the Lord Jesus comes again. That's what we do at communion. We remind ourselves of the same gospel that the church has always proclaimed, the unchanging, immutable gospel that no angel, no man, no church authority can ever tamper with. The gospel is immutable. And lastly, the gospel is central. When you read through verses 6 through 9, you cannot walk away from this passage and think that, God, that, that Paul thinks the gospel is a peripheral doctrine. Right, the gospel's not like some of our differences on baptism. Baptism matters. It's hugely important. Read the, test, read the New Testament. Baptism's all over the place baptism is huge it's so important it's sacred it matters yet it was Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 who said I'm thankful I didn't baptize any of you Corinthians for God did not send me to baptize he sent me to preach the gospel even something as important as baptism it's still Paul never speaks of baptism in these terms I would argue he never speaks of any other doctrine in these harsh terms I mean, uh, go back to verse 8 for a minute. This, this is amazing. Look at what Paul says about the centrality of the gospel. K- I would argue that this is very hypothetical, hyperbolic speech of Paul, but still, he's making the point. I-, I want you to try your hardest to imagine. I don't think that we as human beings possess the creativity to truly imagine, but I want you to do your best for a moment and imagine that my sermon was interrupted Because a host of heavenly angels rips the roof off of our building. And they swoop in here in all their glory, and all their light, with the trumpet sounds. And they circle us and they surround us. And they proclaim to us that the Gospel Redeemer Christian Fellowship has been preaching and teaching is wrong and we need to change. And while we are standing in the middle of an angelic host singing and proclaiming and their glory and their light is shining and the roof is gone, how should we respond? Anathema. May God curse you. We would look those angels in the face and call the cursings of God upon them. That's how important this message is to Paul. Paul. That you tell an angel, go to hell, if an angel teaches you a different gospel. How important is this message to Paul? It's so important to Paul. Go back to verse 6. He essentially equates it with God himself. Right? In verse 6, Paul does something that's grammatically doesn't make sense. He says in verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting not a what, but a who. He doesn't begin verse 6 by saying you've deserted a message, a gospel. He says you've deserted God and have turned to not a different God, but a different gospel. So Paul links the gospel so closely with God, you can't have one without the other. If you turn from the gospel, you're turning from God. If you turn to God, you're only doing that through the gospel. But they are so linked that Paul says you have turned from God. Well, and they would say, no, we haven't, Paul. We haven't turned from God. We still worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We still believe that Jesus is God. We still believe He died on the cross. Paul says, no, because your gospel has changed, you've lost Jesus and you've lost God in the process. You have deserted Him. You've deserted the Father who has called you through Christ. You've deserted Him by deserting His gospel. Again, do you see how central it is? As a matter of fact, it's so important that he has to redundantly repeat himself in verse 9. As we have said before, so I now say again. This implies not only what he just said literally in verse 8, but it also maybe insinuates that he had said this to them before when he was preaching to them. Paul is repeating himself over and over again. If someone changes this gospel, accursed, anathema. Let me say it again. If someone changes the gospel, accursed, anathema. Let me say it one more time. As we have already said, if they change the gospel, anathema. You see how important the gospel is to Paul here. The gospel is a message where there's no room for debate. There's no room for difference. This is something we have to get right. This is something we have to be in agreement on. We can have lots of other doctrines that we disagree on, and it doesn't mean those aren't important. Anything God has revealed is important. Lots of other important doctrines. But there is none as important as the doctrine of the gospel. We absolutely have to get the gospel right. So, in summary, now notice we haven't even really yet begun to, to break open the gospel and what it is, at least according to Paul. But we've learned about the gospel some really important truths. We've learned that the gospel is a very exclusiveness message, it has a strict objective definition. We've learned that because it's so exclusive, it also makes it very offensive. We've learned that the origins of the gospel can be found for us today in the scriptures. The gospel is exclusive. The gospel is offensive. The gospel is biblical. The gospel is immutable. It never changes. And the gospel is central. Paul's message is harsh. His tone is harsh. But the reason his tone is so harsh is because the Galatians have not drifted away from a peripheral doctrine. They've drifted away from a central doctrine.